signature hello isn't it you always do that well it rhymes it rhymes <laughs> oh wow okay there you go. hello david how are you doing man it's good to see you again you had a show last night apparently yeah i did a uh, a live zoom show for mostly my australian and new zealand fans uh and basically it was to promote the fact that covid canceled my tour in australia in march and i had 1500 teddy bears plush toys that I sell at my show sitting in a warehouse and I have the option of you know over time trying to get people to buy them but I said screw it I put together a national campaign it made the press all over Australia oh really wow yeah. cool yeah buy one of my teddy bears they range from $30 to $50 each and 100% of the proceeds go to this charity that I am the international ambassador to called Heart Kids Australia and this charity helps families with children who have congenital heart defects. Hey, man, that's a, that's a cool thing. And that's uh, so you did this from your home in Ojai, California. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. I put together kind of like a pillow fort with all these um, <laughs> uh, bedspreads on these stands. And then behind me is a green screen. I'm just curious. So the Australians and the Kiwis, they're really keen on this character teddy bear yeah when there are no bears in australia and no bears in new zealand right what's up with this teddy bear love man uh i think it's a british the british commonwealth they are teddy bearophiles and for some reason ever since theodore roosevelt that uh, yes, introduced was, yes yes yeah theodore. he introduced the teddy bear the British Commonwealth love teddy bears. They have teddy bear picnics. They have teddy bear chocolates and teddy bear biscuits and teddy bear this and teddy really? bear that. For some reason, they love teddy bears. And when I arrived in Australia in 91, I had no idea that my character, a teddy bear, would be so beloved. And, and my character, Teddy, he truly is embarrassing. He knows he's overweight. Oh, now, Teddy, I hate my fur. I spent hours on it. I just can't do a thing with it. <laughs> I'm having a bad fur day. <laughs> a bad fur day? You agree? No, I didn't. You're gonna know I'm ugly. Teddy, Teddy, you just don't go around calling yourself ugly. You're right. I'm ugly and fat. No. <laughs> He's sad. He loves his nemesis my other character, Chuck, unconditionally. It's, so, in this relationship, am I the teddy bear? Uh, no, you're my nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> no, teddy bear is a really wonderful, just absolutely lovable character. And it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's the sweeter side to David Strassman, you know, and there's that, there's that evil Chuck, you know, that Chuck is, you know, I like Chuck though. Well, Chuck represents the character of, he says the things we all wish we could say. So he has that ability to uh, uh, not be edited. You say you want to be a real boy, but you lack the basic human qualities like, like compassion and gratitude. I have those qualities. Oh, really? Yeah. I feel sorry for this guy here, and I'm grateful I'm not him. <laughs> Hey, well, uh, that's cool, man. So you did a show last night, a midnight show. Are you up for today's adventure? <laughs> oh, come on, man. More coffee, more java. More yeah, java. totally. Oh, totally. You know, this guest today is the head of the museum that I visited all my life as a child here in Los Angeles. I believe he's actually the VP, the vice president. Oh, he is. So he's the number two. Okay, so he is um, Kamala Harris. To the, yeah, yeah, Kamala Harris. So yeah, no, uh, we were talking about Luis Chiappe. So Luis is the VP uh, at the LA County Museum of Natural History and super excited. We've, we've been studying up in our uh, Latin as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have you been, man? I've, I've been practicing some of this, so we'll see yeah. how good we do. Not, not real. You know, I understand why we have Latin. It's a dead language. So when you name something in Latin, it's never going to change. But, but if everybody's learning it in school, how is it a dead language? Well, they don't speak it on the streets anymore, other oh. than maybe some, I don't know, 
Shall we call up our, 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 our esteemed guest? Hey, Dave, meet Luis Chiappe, Vice President, Senior Vice President of Research and Collections at the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles County and Director of the Museum's Dinosaur Institute and the Adjunct Professor at the University of Southern California, among many other things. Luis, thank you for joining Dave and I. And actually, we all met yeah. before. So, yeah, we did. Uh, we met. It's great to see you guys, and thank you for inviting me to be here. Not only are you a badass chef, because we had your unbelievable barbecue in your little backyard there. Yeah. Luis, are you a paleo nerd? I am. I'm complete paleo nerd, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, Luis, in your journey to becoming a paleo nerd, uh, were you born a paleo nerd? What is your background? How did you come to uh, all things prehistoric? I, yeah, interesting. No, I was not born a paleo nerd. Of course, I, you know, like most kids, I had dinosaur books growing up, but I'm the kind of generation that um, drew inspiration from Jacques Cousteau. Do you guys remember sure. Jacques Cousteau? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, there's fantastic uh, documentaries about exploring the ocean. And uh, so I wanted to become a marine biologist when I was oh. a kid, like Jacques Cousteau. But then it turned out that, uh, to be very honest, and this is this is great for you, Ray, uh, the movie and the book Jaws came out. <gasps> yeah. and it freaked me out. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and then I was the, the kind of like, you know, kid who wanted to be a marine biologist, but I was afraid of the ocean and wow. sharks. And when I, when I joined the um, university, you know, when I went to college, I was uh, 18 and I met a, a, a friend, a classmate, and he was a, a paleontologist. And we started going uh, in camping over weekends and collecting some of the um, some of the fossils, the Ice Age fossils that are around uh, Buenos Aires, where I grew up in Argentina. Um, horses and glyptodons oh, and very wow. cool stuff. And uh, and that was it for me. You know, I I was hooked. Uh, since. So you came to so, uh, all things paleo, actually in college, then your undergraduate days. And I, yeah, as an as a, my first year, you know, of as a freshman, essentially, that's how I decided that I wanted to become a paleontologist. Before that, I was, you know, obviously in, intrigued by dinosaurs and in in going to natural history museums and things like that. But it was really with a hands-on experience, if you want. It was really, you know, the kind of thing that my 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 passion grew as I started to find and uh, uncover those vertebrae fossils that were around. So um, it was it was the hunt, that was the adventure that you it were- It was the hunt, but I gotta yeah. say, you know, I also give credit to my grandfather for my love of nature. And uh, my grandfather was a sports uh, fisherman and, and, and hunter. And I grew up in, in Buenos Aires in, you know, an apartment in a, in a high rise, you know, not at all surrounded by nature. And uh, I had to take, you know, my bicycle to visit the, the, the uh, city park, you know, and I didn't have any, any other nature than that. But with my grandfather, I used to go out hunting and, uh, and fishing uh, regularly. And, and that led me to an interest in nature and the so outdoors. Was this oh, cool. was this terrain? Were you in the mountains, in the deserts, or the seashore? No, no. Buenos Aires is pretty flat. You know, Buenos Aires is like Iowa, is surrounded by you know agricultural land. So you know, obviously there are rivers, and I used to fish in rivers. And uh, and there's a big river, the, the Rio de la Plata, that that's huge. You know, an estuary. I used to fish there. And then, uh, but you know, go out in the fields and uh, and and then we usually would be um, hunting for game birds and like quail-like uh, type of um, birds and and you know hares like bunnies uh, <laughs> stuff like that. No, I, Bunny no, not not any not any big hunt. Right, right. Not any you know reindeer. <laughs> Well, I'm curious. You left. Uh, you left Argentina, and you went to the U.S. of A. to be a postdoc at the American Museum. Is tell me about that transition there. What happened there? Uh, you left Argentina. Yeah, yeah. I did all my all my university studies, and uh, then I moved to New York to the American Museum of Natural History as a postdoc. 
back in 1992. And, um, you know, I guess like most international postdocs, you're, you're, for the most part, your idea is like, you know, you do the postdoc for a couple of years and then you're back to your country of origin, right? And find a job there. The American Museum of Natural History is one of the greatest museums on the planet with paleo and dinosaurs. Phenomenal, incredible museum, you know, with incredible collections. And I was very fortunate because at the time I was um, essentially landing, arriving uh, in New York, the American Museum was restarting the um, expeditions to the Gobi Desert. So, you know, these are... As you guys know, the expeditions that the, the famous Central Asiatic expeditions of the 1920s, when Roy Chapman Andrews, Roy Chapman Andrews, yes, you know, led those expeditions and found incredible fossils there. But obviously, you know, those expeditions were interrupted by you know political reasons, and then of course, Second World War, the Cold War, you know, and it only was possible to reconnect with Mongolia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And with that, in the late, in 1990 or something like that, the the American Museum started uh, to plan for a collaboration. I think that the first year they went to uh, the desert over there was 1991. I was there in 1993. So pretty, you know, soon after. Exciting. um, I joined the the group and it was a phenomenal experience with my colleagues from New York and also phenomenal in terms of the discoveries. What did you find in China? All sorts of things, (laughs) you know, some of them very famous now that, that, um, not that I found, but the team found, you know, I want to make sure that people understand that paleontology for the most part is a team effort. And I think that's very important. So off you went to Mongolia uh, on these expeditions. That must have been so exciting. It was incredible. And, and, you know, and I, and we started, we started finding some of these extremely bird-like dinosaurs and some of these ancient birds. And I had done my PhD on um, mesozoic birds, birds that are very primitive and in, in many ways resemble um, dinosaurs, you know, their dinosaurs' predecessors. And, and therefore, I feel that I was at the right place and at the right time with the right experience also, because this is way before all these um, um, fabulous birds from northeastern China started to appear. And I know you guys interview Jingmei O'Connor, who was yes. my former uh, yes. PhD student and now one of my closest collaborators. And, and But, you know, in the early 1990s, we did not have any of this. You know, this bonanza of fossil birds, ancient birds that not appeared yet. And so... Um, what we were finding was extremely relevant. And, and I had, the, again, I had, because of my PhD, I have pretty much consulted everything related to Mesozoic birds that, that was known at the time. So let me ask you this, Luis, your first expeditions to Mongolia and the, the Red Cliffs, right? The Flaming Cliffs, yeah. The Flaming Cliffs, that's it. Okay. Is that where you found some of those weirdos like Shavuya and Mononikos? Yeah, Mononikos. Mononikos, okay. (laughs) Oh my God, Ray got it wrong. Was not a discovery that we made. It was actually made by one of the Mongolian paleontologists uh, uh, called Perle. And he was the one who, you know, brought it to our attention. But at the same time, we did discover Shubuya, more complete version of Mononikos. A little different, but a more complete version now, of the for same. Those, wait, for those who are uh, uninitiated, can you just briefly explain these two dinosaurs and, and their what they look like and, and why they're important? Sure. They're animals that are rather small, somewhat between, you know, uh, about the size of a turkey or smaller. You know, big chicken, if you want, something <laughs> in that range. Rock? And they have very uh, long, delicate um, legs and tiny, tiny little um, arms, you know, that at the time we thought it had only one finger. The later, uh, more complete discoveries revealed that in reality they had three fingers, like most of the 
um, meat-eating uh, dinosaurs, more than theropod dinosaurs, but that two of the three were extremely reduced. So functionally, they would still have one big uh, finger with a very big claw. So those are, you know, very tiny little teeth and long neck. So imagine something like that. And of course, now we know that those animals would have been feathered. So we, we know they would have been feathered, but what in the heck is that big thumb claw all? It's a thumb, right? And it's a claw. Yeah, what's, what's, yeah. That, what's that all about? It's, what? well, it ends in a claw, yes. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's hard to, you know, we speculate it, but of yeah. course it's a speculation about whether uh, the animal would have been eating uh, termites and, uh, oh. and maybe using that to, you know, break some of the termite nests. So I read it has a, an anteater niche. Some, something like that, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a possibility. Now but... I know that it wouldn't be fossilized. Would it have some sort of an anteater-like tongue? No one would know. Yeah, hard to tell, you know. But the interesting thing here, this is a, a science podcast. So you know how science works. Science works with, you know, ideas, hypotheses that are tested and, and replaced by other hypotheses. So initially, back in, 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 you know, 30 years ago, these animals were so bird-like. And we didn't have a lot of what we know now of that dinosaur bird transition. We know that birds were nested evolutionary within dinosaurs, but there were huge gaps in, right. in our understanding of, of that transition in comparison to today. And we, our hypothesis, we proposed that these were flightless birds that mm -hmm. essentially were, you know, birds that could have either lost uh, their ability to fly, which of course we know of many other different types of groups that have lost their ability to fly, from ostriches to, you know, the Galapagos uh, cormorants, and or alternatively, that flight could have evolved twice. And at the time, you know, the idea of flight evolving twice was like heretical. <laughs> I mean, it's like that could not. And nowadays, we know that there's a lot of experimentation in terms of uh, flight experimentation around the dinosaur bird transition. And we have things like some of these Chinese um, uh, dinosaurs with membranes or some things like Microraptor with, you know, this long flight feathers in the... In That's the, called convergent evolution? Well, it, it is in, in a broad sense. So flight evolved three different times from three different species. Flight evolved multiple times within dinosaurs. It is right now a perfectly reasonable interpretation of the fossil record. 30 years ago, it was not. And also, by now, we have also shown that our hypothesis of relationships, the fact that we claim that these were, this Mononychus and Shibuya were, were within birds, has been rejected, if you want, by new evidence, by more complete fossils. The fossils have been found in South America. They have more primitive ones have been found in South America. They have been found in North America. In Europe, they're, you know, now pretty much everywhere and and we know that they're not they're not birds you know they're not birds they're not birds no okay what what is the word for a trait that evolves independently of species what is that called you often often we would use flight, the term convergent evolution if it has like flight a functional component like pterosaurs uh is one way pterosaurs um you know, bats and birds. If they assume the more or less the same body shape, yeah, okay. Right. I mean, you know, it, it depends at what level. At the level of, you know, evolving flight, yes, but obviously if you dig in, you know, if you say, well, wings, you know, yes, but we know that the wing of a pterosaur, the wing of a bat, and the wing of a bird um, are made up very differently. Right, you know? they're all different. So, Huh. So yeah, Jing Mei was saying that uh, uh, the flight evolved maybe four or five or more times within the dinosaur tree. It's possible. I mean, I think that the question that I, in my opinion, you know, has not been documented well is what kind of flight, you know, because flight could be, could be passive flight, like essentially gliding 
you go, you, you, you go somewhere high and then you leap and you, you know, glide for a distance or could be what we call powered flight. And uh, essentially when, when thrust is generated through the flapping of wings. A rocket, I see your picture over there, uh, Dave, of course, you know, uh, that would be power flight, but <laughs> animals have not uh, yeah, evolved that one That's my yet. Uh, scale model of a space shuttle. I know, it's next, it's next to, to my office here. <laughs> So are we still sorting out where true birds diverge from or come out of the dinosaur tree? Do we have a feeling of certainty yet which group? Well, again, it depends on how you comb, you know, how finely you comb that tree. If you're if the question <laughs> is, you know, do we are we arguing whether birds are, you know, uh, evolutionary, whether they, they originated from theropod dinosaurs, the answer is no, not anymore. Even within theropod dinosaurs, we know the answer of they evolved from a group of dinosaurs that we, we refer to as Maniraptorans, and include things like Oviraptor or oh, okay. uh, Deinonychus or Velociraptor, some of these famous. Isn't there any genetic evidence? I guess there's no genetic evidence from pre-Cretaceous, right? DNA does not come to the rescue right. here. Uh, these um, hypotheses of relationships, of evolutionary relationships, are entirely based on, on anatomy, you know. Do you have any comments on the Chickensaurus project? <laughs> ah, the Chickensaurus. Well, maybe good for eating one day. You know, maybe one day we could do a barbecue with that one. Okay. <laughs> T-Rex tenders. Uh, yeah, I'll have the claw, please. But yeah, we had Jack Horner on, and it was an interesting discussion. But uh, right. Wow. Okay, birds. You know, I, uh, it seems like that evolutionary tree is still being sorted out. There's a lot of a uh, lot of branches on that tree. At, at a at a certain level, yes, and at a certain level, you know, you often get one cladogram, one of these diagrams that you use to plot evolutionary relationships, somewhat different than the next one, and somewhat different. That means that you know these branches in our interpretation are moving around at a at a certain level. If you go, you know. At a, a 20,000 feet uh, level, you have um, consistency. Well, you know, <laughs> the idea that birds do not come from the theropod line mm -hmm. is, uh, I guess maybe we could we could delve into that. It's maybe a little bit too deep here, but you said they do not. There's a lot of textbooks saying that, right? They do come from they the theropod. They do come from. Course, yes. thought, all right. They're nested within theropod. Within the theropod. You know? All right. Now... As you know, the history of this is um, uh, complicated. You yes, know, I yes. mean, in in over over the two hundred years that that scientists have been debating uh, about the origin of dinosaurs, has gone back and forth. I think that now we have a um, such a volume of evidence that is it will be. It's difficult to imagine that we would have more evidence that somehow would um, replace the current hypothesis that birds are dinosaurs. You know, they evolve from the dinosaurs, they are dinosaurs. Just like, okay. you know, humans are, are primates and they're mammals. You know, it's hard to imagine that somehow someone's going to come up and say that humans are not primates or are not mammals and places, unless you go into the divine and of course oh, that's well, let's, a different let's, conversation. Let's not, but let's not go there. Ray but, is always telling me ahead, I'm Dave. a lobe fin fish. So Yeah you go. Exactly. Yes, mm -hmm. I'm always telling him that when we've argued about that, but you'll accept that we're it's a lobe like fin that. fish. You know, it'll be hard to imagine that someone's gonna say that we're not uh, fish anymore. We're now cephalopods. Yeah. <laughs> now, an, an article came out yesterday, just yesterday, on uh, lagerpetids. Did I say that right? Lagerpetids? Yes. yes lagerpetids yes. are yes. proto-pterosaurs. They look almost like a goanna. Yeah, but I mean, actually, that's the interpretation. Oh, you know, okay. historically, lagerpetids have been considered to be more like proto-dinosaurs. Right. You know, 
the idea was that they're these little guys that look very a little dinosaur-like in general and in, in appearance and lived in the Triassic and that somehow there were some of the some of the groups that were thought to be related or close to the origin of dinosaurs. This interpretation, this new interpretation, uh, argues, I think very, very soundly, that they are actually closer to the pterosaurs than the dinosaurs. I, well, I think there's some uh, identifying skeletal structures within the skull that uh, is not found in, in any other organism. But what I can't get around is I saw a, an artist's conception drawing of this thing that looks like a goanna on a tree. So I, I immediately think, okay, it's going to be tree down. It's going to be a glider maybe jumping from tree to tree. And then maybe it starts forming the flaps. So it's a glider. And then, but there is no missing link between a logopeted and a pterosaur. I, I think that, I think that at this point, it's a hypothesis right. of relationships but by no mean, you know, it, it, it means that now you have an animal like a dromomeron, for example, and that somehow it's, you know, the ancestor of all the pterosaurs. And then you see that it's just uh, an, it's, it's that, that they share common skeletal sure. features, as you pointed out, that places uh, them um, just outside as a, a branch in the line that would go to the pterosaurs. But are there transitional transitional organisms from non-flying with, with no little tiny beak to something that looks like a pterosaur? I mean, is there any type of... No, unfortunately, no. no. That's, that's been the issue. That's been the issue that this because is... Because their bones are hollow and they don't fossilize well. Delicate. They show up very abruptly in the in oh. the uh, fossil record and the earliest pterosaurs are 100% pterosaurs wow. in a sense you know <laughs> with, that's scary with a, with a typical with a typical wing structure of a pterosaur and in yeah we don't have any a lot of stuff shows just shows you know. up in the fossil record but i mean maybe what we need to find at some point is some kind of a deposit like the jeho but that mm. is Triassic and look, I mean that was that was it in a chain. That's the Lagerstatten in China. Yeah, that was the situation we were thirty years ago, going back to you know Shibuya and things like that. We didn't have that, and now you know we have all sorts of you know, amazing intermediate animals that fill the gap between uh, Deinonychus, you know. In Archaeopteryx, right. you know, uh, no, we didn't have that before. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful slide. Hey, Luis, I want to ask you just to go back. We were you were off in Mongolia and your life story here, but then you must have at some point um, with the American Museum folks said, uh, "Let's go to Patagonia. Let's go back to my home country. Let's go back. Let's go to Gondwana." And you and a team stumbled across yes. an incredible site. When I look at your Wikipedia page, it says. You are known for a site called Alcama Huevo. Alcama Huevo, because we're use the Spanish one, huevo, you know, the H is mute. Huevo is egg. Egg. Well huevos huevos rancheros, right? So what does that mean? Does it mean Alcama more eggs, right? More eggs? The site in northern Patagonia is framed by a mountain of an Asian volcano, extinct volcano. That's called Auca Mawida, and that's a, a native uh, term that I was told it means the mare mountains or the mountain of the mares, you know? So we, we kind of like jokingly came with the term Auca Mahuevo because Mahuevo is a sort of like a Spanish construction of mas huevos. So, so what was that day of discovery like? What were you looking for? Yeah, tell what us. What did you find and, and how amazing was it? I was looking for Mesozoic birds, Cretaceous birds. That was my intention to explore that area with our, our team uh, in search of more things like Mononychos or Shibuya, which at the time I was still kind of like thinking it was a bird. And uh, in, but of course, we stumbled on upon this great uh, nesting site where you know you would walk. You couldn't literally uh, walk without stepping on fragments 
of eggshells. They were, they, they littered the ground in for miles and miles. Really? Wow. And, how, uh, how did you first notice that? I mean, it, you were like, wait a minute, there's miles and miles of eggs here. Yeah, like many of these paleontological expeditions, uh, often you just drive around and you're searching for exposures, right? You're looking around for, I mean, there, this is a very, like Mongolia, this is a very desolate area. So you're looking for, oh, look, you know, there's some exposures over there. Let's see if we can get there. Often you cannot get with your car, so maybe you just, you know, leave the car in some kind of a dirt road or some, and then walk in. And we did that. We left our vehicles on a dirt road and then started walking towards these exposures that we wanted to, what we call prospect, which means you walk over over the surface and you're looking for little uh, tips of bones. And was this right? alluvial? Was this alluvial mass wasting, or was this a floodplain? That... No, this is what this is essentially an erosional surface. So it means this flat area that we were we parked and then started walking was an erosional surface, which means that the um, the stratum, the, the the egg layer that contained all these thousands and thousands of eggs, uh, which was, you know, from the late Cretaceous, 80 million years old, was weathered, eroded, and now the surface that you're walking on is the surface of back 80 million years ago. So it's the tops of the eggs, or it's the very top of the strata. It, it, everything that was accumulated on top had been removed as a result of erosions, you know, so past it's, erosions. It's literally and almost like you are walking through the egg field. You are walking, you are walking, you know, on the egg, the egg site. And obviously the eggs are, when they got to the surface because of erosion, they break. But you could see, you could see this accumulations of black, gray eggshell that then would spread out, you, you could imagine, you could say, oh, well, this was the clutch. And of course, the clutch now is weather because it's been exposed. And then is it's not only broken, but also it's starting to spread sure. out. Sure, radiates you know? out. And then, you will, and then you walk another um, six or eight feet and you find another concentration, wow. which means another clutch. And then you walk another eight feet and there's another one. How many eggs per clutch and how big? Well, in the process of our expeditions, we started excavating some of these uh, sites. And we also um, decided that we didn't want to work on what was already exposed. So the, the layer at some point would go inside a hill. So then we, we, we decided to excavate a hill from the top and exposed carefully the egg layer. Ah, nice. So that egg layer was not uh, damaged by erosion. It was excavated by us. And then we started finding the clutches intact. Wait, we know? haven't said who they are. What eggs of who? Of, of... <laughs> you guys, uh, you're not it's using... It's a sauropod. They're sauropods. They're sauropods. Oh, right. You know, the... the Long-necked uh, dinosaurs. The, this, I mean, and how... But the question is, how did we know... It was because we started also finding the remains of the embryos inside the wow. eggs. Okay. And so it was the morphology, the anatomy of the fossils, the baby unhatched uh, dinosaurs that told us that they were sauropods. So Luis, the, the size of these is about the size of a soccer ball, one, one egg or? No, smaller, smaller. smaller. They're, 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 roughly, they're roughly the size of an ostrich egg. You know. Okay. And you found embryos within these. And yeah. these are titanosaurs. These are titanosaur sauropods, which is a group of sauropods very well known in the Cretaceous of Argentina, South America. Some of them are enormous, you know, like Argentinosaurus, you know, and some of them are not so big. There, there's some, you know, for sauropod uh, standards, pretty, or dinosaur standards, not huge, maybe something in the range of uh, 20 feet long. So, you know, modest 
uh, for a sauropod. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 hard to tell from the embryo whether this was one of the giant ones or whether it was one of the modest ones, because... Was this all buried in, in tuft, volcanic tuft, in ash? Is, no, in in um, mud, essentially in... Oh, so it was a flooding event. In a mudstone. It's a flooding right. event. These animals were converging in great numbers, converging in a floodplain. Never build your house on a floodplain. Exactly. <laughs> they were laying the eggs in a nest, building their nest and laying their eggs in a floodplain. And, you know, I would say typically, I'm sure things went fine. The hatchlings hatched and, you know, and everybody was happy. Uh, <laughs> and, and those happy events are not recorded in the fossil record. What is recorded in the fossil record is tragedy in the rock record, if you want are the unhappy events, you know, the the right. the, um, the carnage that took place when the river flooded and then covered the nest site with a layer of mud. And the mud became rock, of course, and mudstone, but the mud also killed and trapped inside the But the embers. event wouldn't have been too dramatic. It would have been a slow accumulation of silt and sediment. Otherwise, yeah, the nests yeah, would not was, be it in was, there. Uh, it was not a rapid a flash flood or anything like that, because otherwise you would see all the eggs jumbled together in, in one. And no, no, it was, it was... These were in situ then? It was in situ. It was, you know, water rising. So it had to be gradual. Wow. Flooding the plain. In uh, maybe, you know, I'm sure that there was during seasonality and some of that took place, but from time to time there was a, in, you know, an El Nino event or something like that that dumped a lot more water and therefore the flooding was reach out areas that would probably not reach on an annual basis. And, and then enough, but I mean, you're talking about eggs and the embryos inside, they were unhatched. So it's not that, you know, the adults and the, even some of the young animals, I'm sure just they walk away, they avoided the flood, but the eggs were... It's, uh, it's sad. It really is sad when you think about stay it. There. They So this is a gradual accumulation. And do you have bones from inside of these eggs? Or do you have some baby titanosaurs maybe laying around your office? We have. And I, yeah, actually, I was showing, I was showing uh, this guy. Um, I'm going to hold it like that because, you know, let me see. Can yeah, you, bring it a little close. Oh, that? my God, that is... Absolutely you see that amazing. Little... If you go to Luis Chiapi's page at com, you can see this amazing embryo fossil that he's holding up. It's a wow. skull of a baby. Can you see the, the big wow. round or the big round opening is the eye socket. The triangle opening next to it is what we call the antorbital fossa. And then you see the snout. And then at the bottom, you see the lower yeah. jaw, right? That's absolutely insane. So, and what's the big hole so in the back? The big hole? The big round hole is the, the eye socket. Oh, the because in juveniles, the eye is always much, much larger. Big, yeah. exactly. exactly. And, the, and, and the, the, the snout tends to be uh, short. So, so from a scientific point of view, beyond you know the cool stuff that we've been talking about, these embryos that we've found were the first known um, embryos of sauropods. Wow. So, so they, they told us many things. They told us that, first of all, that sauropods laid uh, hard-shell eggs, you know. Uh, some people have speculated that maybe they didn't. Maybe that they, you know, they gave life to, they gave birth to live young. Like all other dinosaurs, they laid, laid eggs. eggs. They also uh, indicated that because we have multiple layers of um, of nesting, not I'm, I was telling you a story of one, but we actually have several le uh, nesting events, indicated uh, site fidelity. These animals return to this site time after time. I'm sure they return many more uh, times than the ones that are recorded in the rock record. But as I said, those were the times when nothing happened, 
and you know what distance in in time do you have between your lowest layer and your upper layer are you talking thousands of years or hundreds of years thousands of years yes wow. probably thousands of years for thousands of years this animals continued to return wow. this this species of course not the same animal but of course. you know it was a site that was used by the, wow. the species for whatever uh, advantages they you know found there for nesting and where was where was this locale in Gondwana and what was the ecosystem so this was in what is now you know north western Patagonia in Argentina so 80 million years ago it you know would have been uh, an area with forests and more of a temperate type of uh, environment uh, with, you know, these rivers and some seasonality. The rivers probably were lined by horsetails and horsetails are very uh, nutritious and uh, believe it or not. And uh, so I add them, add them to your salad if you want at some <laughs> point. Uh, and, yeah. And also, you know, not only they're nutritious, but also they grow really fast. So it's the kind of thing that you could imagine Imagine, you know, a herd of these animals chomping and and eating. They needed a ton to eat. Sauropods are big, 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 big Because yeah. obviously, you imagine the the adults coming in. They have to be eating as they go and and lay their eggs and so on. And then when the babies hatch, they also need to eat, right? So let me ask you this. Well, we had Jack Horner on, and he talked about uh, the all trishal. We learned the word altricial and precocial. Yeah, right, and right. Uh, the good mother lizard with the hadrosaurs, they're taking care of their babies because their babies were helpless. Were these sauropods? And that's called, wait, that's called, which one? That's called altricial. It's where the mothers altricial. take care of the babies. Yeah. Yes. And precocial so, yeah. is drop your baby off and get out of town. So are these sauropods precocial? They were ready precocial. to go? Precocial. They would have been absolutely precocial, pretty much like, you know, okay. uh, if you want... A, a crocodile uh, hatching and or 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 a turtle, you know. We use the example of the the so like the analogy of sea turtles because people uh, are used to um, see the documentaries of the the arrivadas, the sea turtles uh, one night all getting together to a beach in great numbers and laying their eggs, and then they just disappear. And at some point, all the babies hatch. And of course, there's a big carnage because you had all the predators ready to snap babies and only a small percentage wow. of, of the babies make it. So think about that, but not in a marine uh, context, but in a terrestrial context where these animals would have probably, during a season, uh, lay their eggs, then they would have, you know, uh, probably left the site, or perhaps they patrolled the site a little bit, but not certainly the one-on-one -on -one type of uh, parental care. And then when when the uh, babies hatch, I'm sure that even if the parents were around, it's, it's inconceivable that they would have been able to protect everyone that's, from... That's just, that's a scene to imagine, just all the carnivores yeah, that yeah. were around, and actually you found... Them. You found one of those current those uh it wasn't a Carnotaurus, but you found a relative and named it Alcasaurus. Alcasaurus from Alcamahuevo. So, you know, again same place. Alcasaurus. And uh, same we found it right there in, in the same area, right? I mean you're talking about this is a we call it a site, but you think of this site as a site that has it's miles big, right? It's not. It's not just like one little wow. quarry. And in uh, so, but essentially the same time period. So, in an animal that lived with the sauropods and the uh, babies, and I'm sure ate them. And how big was this predator? What kind of predator was it? Was it a, a theropod? It was like Carnotaurus. It was one one of these Carnotaurus-like animals, but it didn't have horns like the Carnotaurus, Aww. you know. <laughs> And uh, um, but it did have the very tiny, tiny, little, tiny, very tiny um, arms. But it, unlike Mononychos, you know, they had a full set of fingers, but they were extremely reduced. Tiny, tiny. It's a, it's a belongs to a group that's known or called Avelisaurus. Does the Argentinian uh, Argentinian How do you say that? Argentinosaurus. Ar
Argentina source, does that hold the world record so far for a sauropod size, or what is the largest oh. sauropod ever found? You know, you, you're, you're starting, you, you know, it's the contest of, uh, you know, we Titans. like to compare about, you know, parts, uh, who, <laughs> who you has know, the sizes, it, it matters, right? Exactly. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so... Um, There's a giant femur in a museum in South no, America somewhere yeah, exactly. that is absolutely you massive. Know, it's, it's 10 feet tall. It's definitely one of the largest known dinosaurs. But it, when you have, you're comparing this one that's known by a neck vertebra, or this one is known by a femur, or this one is known by... It's just hard to really say, you know. Plus, of course, you know, these are individuals. And at the end of the day, you know, I guess that when you're, when you in general talk about size, you talk about the size of a species. And, you know, obviously this, for the most part, these dinosaurs are known by a single individual. And, uh, and it's, sure. it's hard to say, well, was it still growing? Was it, you know, was it, uh, I don't know, little guy between, sure. uh, in the family or, or was it a big guy? Right. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Um, that site, Alca Mahuevo, is that protected now? Uh, Can I go see it? No, no. You know, <laughs> there's there's a barrier, and but it's it's big. There's no fence. I guess that you you could go see. Uh, you know, it's it is in some way protected, but uh, you know, it's it's a big open space. It's like if I were to say. Are the federal lands in the United States protected? Oh, uh, okay. Yes, right. they are in, in in paper, of course. But we all know that uh, you know the federal government doesn't have the 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 capabilities to well implement maybe, that level of protection throughout all the federal lands. So, but a lot of people wouldn't even know what they're looking at. So, if we went yes, with you, perhaps true. we would know what we're looking at. So your Titanosaur baby, did you, can you actually name the species that it's from? No, you can't. No? And uh, beyond saying it's a Titanosaur, and it would not be a wise practice to name a, a new species on the basis of, of an, embryo. an embryo, because, you know, it's going to change. Imagine if you were to name a Homo sapiens, our species on the basis of a six-month-old fetus. A fetus. And well, then, scientists do that with a tooth or a vertebrae. Yeah, they have done that, <laughs> and and sometimes you know it, that doesn't mean that it's a good practice. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I hear you. Do you return to Argentina from time to time? Yeah, as a matter of fact, well, you know, not now, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I am, you know, this this baby was has a story uh, that's important to tell. Um, this was illegally um, smuggled out of uh, oh. Argentina many years ago. And it, you know, it has been recently, I don't want to name people, but it's recently uh, repatriated. And I was the courier. I was oh. going to be the courier. Uh, you know, I was going to take it back to Argentina with a bit of um, ceremony, March, but but I with a little bit, you know, but also, unfortunately, I was not able to travel in March and I have not been able to travel since. But as soon as we get over the pandemic and I can uh, hop on a plane and go back, I will take it with me and it will become part of the uh, Museo Carmen Funes, which is the museum in Patagonia that houses most of the Alcama Huevo uh, Oh, so there is a large museum in Patagonia itself, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's several large museums oh, wow. in Patagonia, but this is one uh, that's nearby. And this is the museum that I work with and my colleague, Rodolfo Coria, okay. the co-leader of the expeditions that discovered the Alcama Huevo site. Speaking of museums, you're pretty much responsible for curating the Dinosaur Hall at L.A. County Museum of Natural History. Yeah, that's, that's correct. I was the, the curator, yes. And when I first walked into that new Dinosaur Hall, I just went, we are in the 21st century. It is 
absolutely beautiful. The the mountings, the the selection, it has everything you ever want to see if you have the remotest interest in in dinosaur and paleo history. So I don't, I'm not wearing a hat, but hats off to uh, to that. Thank you. How many years did it take you to to design that? It took a good number of years because you know getting to the idea, uh, massaging the idea of what we wanted to do. I I traveled all around the world seeing dinosaur exhibits, and as you know, dinosaur exhibits. I realized that dinosaur exhibits are really um, organized in three ways, if you want, for the most part. They are either chronological, so here are the Triassic dinosaurs, here are the Jurassic dinosaurs, here are the Cretaceous dinosaurs. They are, like the MH, uh, walk through the sort of like family tree of dinosaurs, highlighted features, yep. you know, or they are set in dioramas with plants and, you know, backgrounds and so on, um, and telling more. So we wanted to tell something different, we, not because, you know, it's better, simply because, you know, you want to create something that's different, right? So we decided to go, and it took, as I said, a fair amount of time to get there. We decided to do something that is about the nature of science, the how do we know what we know, in which we would be using the specimens, the mounds, the fossils that we show there to as case studies to answer uh, the questions that we were presenting there, which the public cares about, which are, you know, obviously many of the questions, the, the, the same questions scientists care about, you know, so it, the exhibit is all uh, question driven, like the nature of science with, you know, and sometimes we have to say, we just don't have a good answer for this question. And that's fine. You gotta be, you wanna be, um, uh, you know, transparent and, and explain to people, particularly in this country where people are desperate to get an answer, <laughs> you know, uh, give me the answers. Like you can't just say, well, uh, we don't know, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. That usually is not, uh, but that's the bottom line in science. We do not know many of the answers for many of our questions. And I find that to be inspirational because hopefully some of the kids going through this exhibit, uh, you know, as you can imagine, will, will say, hey, maybe I'm the one who's gonna find the clues for that, you know, and answer that question, right? So, so but I, I'm gonna tell you a story, which I like okay. to tell, that inspired me a lot to, work with the designers uh, to something that I think this exhibit does very well. This exhibit is for everybody and it targets, you know, little kids and young adults and, you know, uh, adult people. It's for all ages. And, and when I was in New York many years ago and one of these typical cocktail parties in New York and outside the museum, which was in, actually in in the in the Hamptons, you know, fancy cocktail oh, party there. Nice. And uh, this gentleman asked me um, the typical, you know, New York like, uh, so what do you do, you know? And uh, <laughs> and I said, well, I'm I'm a paleontologist. I study dinosaurs and things like that, fossils. And he looked very seriously at me while we both were sipping our glass of champagne. Um, and he said to me, I didn't know that was an adult profession. <laughs> so uh, that uh, that Ooh. that really um, that statement branded me, and I kept thinking about it throughout the the construction of this exhibit. How do we do a dinosaur hall that is not perceived as a place for kids? You know, of course, is you know important and and it'd be wonderful for kids, but it's not just for kids. How do we do something? that feels that, you know, it has, that, that is for well, you, Well, you've for done us. it, you've done it. You've, it's approachable, it's fun. And I think we did it that, that, and you do it with a combination of the messaging, the, the, the things you put in, and the aesthetics, the aesthetics that need to be, I was gonna say, you know, it's, it's beautifully laid out, Luis, and, and you've got stuff for everybody, yeah. so the adults can dig deeper if they want, and, the kids can have fun. It's it's just a beautiful hall that just opened. Uh, how many years ago now? In in July of twenty eleven. So yeah. yeah, Luis, what's it like running a museum where you can't have any visitors? <laughs> Tough. 
I don't think I need to explain that this was recorded during the pandemic. I mean, I don't need to tell you, unfortunately, and this is very sad for people like us who value science and in, in value uh, museums and museums as, as places uh, of knowledge, you know. A lot of museums in the United States are gonna be out of business as a result of this pandemic. Not ours, you know, we have managed to navigate the financial impact of this well in very well, but also we are benefited by the fact that we are a public-private uh, partnership. So we have the support from the County of Los Angeles. So we have, we're lucky to have that while many museums who are entirely uh, private enterprises do not have that support. Right. Um, but it's, it's sad to see the galleries empty. Well, best of luck as we uh, see what 2021 has to offer us, man. And I, I... I think I think we are going to be we are going to be okay. I am more concerned about you know the reports that are coming from you know the the uh, the American Alliance of uh, Museums and others that are pointing out maybe 30 percent of or so a, a significant portion of the museums in the United States maybe permanently close as a result of this, you know, it's, it's terrible. Well, there's nothing wrong with giving your local museum uh, the price of admission for a future visit today. Exactly. I like yeah. that idea, yeah. Hey, Luis, I'm gonna ask you a question here. Yeah. Um, if you could time travel and you could only go back in time what period of time would you want to go to and what would you want to see? I would love to go back to the early Cretaceous, to the forests of the Jehol Bayota in northeastern China. Not only I love China and I go there, you know, normally I go there usually about twice a year. And, uh, and I love the country and the food and the people and the fossils. Uh, and uh, But I would love to, you know, it'd be like, Birding in the Mesozoic, right? <laughs> With my binoculars and and, uh, and spend time looking at those incredible and birds. And the Jehoiabiota is a Lagerstatten with incredibly detailed preservation of organic materials and feathers and skin impressions and gut contents. Exactly. And and hair for mammals and That's right. all sorts of things. Actually, I want to do a little follow-up question. <laughs> What's your favorite fossil moment, if you were in recalling all yeah, your the adventures? The coolest thing you've ever seen. The, the thing that like maybe like sticks with you or was transformed your life. It goes back to Okamawewa. Okamawewa was an incredible experience. At the time, we were uh, finding inside some of the pieces of egg that were washed on the surface, little substances with little bumps, you know, and we were not sure what they were. One of our um, team members was saying that has to be the skin, you know, and I just like, nah, it cannot be the skin, you know, it's like skin. And of course, this is this is laughable because I was the next day or something like that. I was just walking on on a on a slope and there's this beautiful chunk of um, eggshell on the surface and I picked it up. And he had this big, in this case, this big patch of clearly skin <laughs> with, you know, all the scales and a, and a longer row of bigger scales crossing. And it was just perfect. I remember, you know, sitting there and taking a look at this beautiful view of the, the, the landscape, you know, the, the wash and you know, enjoying the moment. You have found something that no one has ever seen before. Uh, baby dinosaur skin. And of course, you know, I had to be the one who found it to say, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> but, wow. Wow, that's a cool moment, man. Yeah, I just, I dream of going to Patagonia someday. Me too. Love it's to go beautiful. There. Me too. I, I want to see the everything from the deserts to the coast. It's absolutely one of the most wildest places on the planet. Yeah, it's all gorgeous, all gorgeous. 
All right, so Luis, science has been under attack, even vilified in the U.S. recently by the last administration, mostly. And as a scientist and an educator uh, and a curator, what advice do you have for the non-scientists to help promote the idea that science is based on fact and the scientific method and opinions are just that, somebody's point of view? Oh, that's a tough. Um, I think that, obviously, I work for a science museum, so and I believe in the mission of our museum to to educate people about science. But I think that, you know, when people think of science, they think of maybe dinosaur discoveries or, or some some version of somewhat more remote to our daily life. But I'd like to, in this particular year, shows how science is so much needed, how we, you know, need to befriend science and understand that science serves society very well. Look at what we've done through science and we've created a vaccine in record time in in record time in a year that will save the lives of millions of people. And that's science. That's that's something that touches us uh, now. And in, in we see, hopefully, the light at the end of the tunnel. If I am going to say something, as you pointed out to people, it's like, let's not give up. You know, you guys are doing a great job with this podcast. We need to do more. We need to continue educating people about the benefits of science and in making sure that they understand that science is transparent. Science is, you know... Um, accessible, and science is for the benefit of um, society. And it could save your life this year. It could. And also, as we know, certainly science has been used for destruction. And But that should not be the reason why we don't, you know, embrace the good portion of the benefits of science. Unfortunately, humans will always use any innovation for their own advantages as well. I'm curious, do you see the same problems in Argentina as far as resistance to science these days? Is there No, s- absolutely not. Now, I think this is very much, uh, very, very much an American phenomenon, if you mm-hmm. ask well, me as a foreigner. I sadly, mean, yeah. America has spent a lot of money on wars and military and weapons and forgot about basic things like education, infrastructure, and science. And that's been since 1945. Yeah. Wow. Luis, it has certainly been a true pleasure hanging out here with you. Likewise. And next time when we can, you guys come to L.A. Well, you are already. And yep. uh, let's get together for a barbecue. Oh, I'm up for one. that. We'll eat, di- we'll eat dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> when I was Chickenosaurus. Dinosaur. When I, when I was studying up for this, I, I realized that Carnotaurus which is an Argentinian dinosaur with the tiny little arms yeah. and the big uh, devilish horns. That actually means meat bull, right? It, it, mean, it means the, the, uh, the meat-eating bull. <laughs> the meat-eating bull. Yeah. That's yeah. what I will behave like so the next exactly. time I'm around All your right. barbecue. Well, it's like, so. you know, some of the cows in Mongolia, you see them uh, eating, uh, uh, scavenging other cows there as you drive oh, by. Oh, really? <laughs> Oh, oh, that's a that's no. a whole other. Oh, okay. no cows, camels. Oh. <laughs> oh. All right, well, okay. Luis, uh, thank you so much. This was awesome. Really appreciate your time today. Bye, guys. Uh, thank you again, and thanks for doing sure. this. You know, for doing run, running this and for helping to get science out. Thank you. Well, huh? Huh? Did you was did you good? see me? I know this is audio, but um, you know we recorded these in Zoom. Did you see me actually lean forward in my chair as he was talking about this floodplain of these uh, eggs, as far as you can see? Wow, he was holding up the the embryo, <laughs> man. That was really cool. I was leaning in as well. He was leaning in. We're all getting excited. Yeah, yeah. You can see that picture on uh, Luis Chiappe's webpage at paleonerds.com. That's right. Yeah. I just felt like we were just hanging around in the living room there with uh, Luis, you know? He's such a friendly guy and fun to talk to. and Yeah. And, you know, we practice up on all this Latin. And, you know, on the, darn that, that darn internet, you know, I was... Well, I think you should have practiced up on your Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
that we came, I came across this website saying it's Mononikis, not Mononikis. And then I say Mononikis. Dude, I was so knows? embarrassed because he, he immediately said Mononikis. So I was who like, knows? Who knows? Oh, man. You know, you say Mononikis, I say Mononikis. Let's call the whole thing off. You say epoch, I say epic. That's right. There, there you go. And uh, what an epic episode. It was a really totally epoch episode. It was fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, I want to go to Patagonia. I want to go back to uh, Luis's house and have some barbecue. Yeah, me too. So anyway, we got some great episodes coming up, don't we? As always, Dave, we have luminaries galore. You know, been uh, flipping through the old Rolodex, sending out the emails, mailing letters off, inviting people minute. to be on the show. Rolodex? What's that? Yeah, it's this weird thing. You put it in this little spoke, and there's these, like, index cards. And, you know, Wait a minute. You, you don't it. really – by the way, for those of you who don't know, a Rolodex is basically <laughs> you can put people's business cards, and it comes with its own cards, and you it's a little device that is before digital contacts. <laughs> Maybe I'll put a picture of my prehistoric Rolodex on the website. Yes, <laughs> yes, you should. You should, because that is a paleo item. Uh, I'm All dating right, myself. All right. Signing off from Ojai, California, where I'm looking out at some of the heritage oaks in my backyard, which I am not allowed. If I want to cut one little branch off there, I've got to call my uh, my city planners. I can't mm. even touch these trees. They're heritage well, oaks. Well, that's good. The heritage oaks. Well, uh, I'm uh, signing off from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska, where I can look out and see the Tongass Narrows, Pennock Island in the distance. And you know what? It's in the middle of the winter and still no snow wow well yeah who would know anyways great show dave uh we'll talk to you shortly man okay buddy from ohio bye 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 thanks for being a paleo nerd help us spread the word of science rate us on apple podcasts and follow us on facebook instagram and twitter you can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. Don't you understand? I'm a paleo nerd.